Welcome to the Discovering God Hour. Um, I do want to mention, if you are a new member or a newcomer to our church, we have classes going on right now in uh, room two and in the uh, resource center, respectively, for newcomers and for new members, taught by Pastor Ken and Hal Selstad. We also have in room one, which is the, the front room up at the corner here, Crossroads class taught by Troy Fisher. So if you are in that college 20s and uh, you'd like to attend that, that is specifically designed for you. I'm the catch-all. So if you don't have a, if, if you don't find yourself special this morning, you're in here with me and next week as well. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, I just personally signed up for the men's retreat. I encourage you to do the same thing. Uh, you can sign up to go Thursday, Friday, and Saturday or just to go Friday afternoon after work and stay overnight uh, through into sun- Saturday. Uh, we're looking forward to having a good time. That is the weekend of the 25th through the 27th. And you can sign up at the, resor- at the uh, Welcome Center. Community Kids Midweek Fun Night is this Wednesday. This Wednesday, there's not an agenda. Uh, the kids aren't going to be scattering to different classes. We'll have a short, uh, a short message and a short video that I believe will be in here. Um, but we'll also have a big, uh, big game time, and uh, I think Hal is calling it like a 20-foot banana split the kids will be diving into at the end. So just a time for us to introduce you, if you'd like to stay, and certainly your kids, to the midweek program. We are moving to a new curriculum that we're excited about this year. And then on the 24th, our adult classes, Community Institute, will kick off, and the full uh, Community Kids midweek curriculum We'll begin again. The kids will go to their respective classes. So this Wednesday is just a fun introductory night, and I hope that you make that a priority for your children. And then finally, the celebration dinner two weeks from today. It'll be actually tonight. So we have community group this week and next Sunday as well, and then the 28th will be a time of uh, celebration and rejoicing how the Lord has guided CBC over the last year and uh, looking forward to what he has for us in the future. You can turn to James 3 if you'd like to get the jump on me. It was called the Marvel Apple of our age. We're slipping into fall quickly. It feels like fall's already here, even though it is still summer. There was an apple that began the late part of the 19th century and early into the 20th became the most dominant apple in the American market. It's the one that you don't buy today. It's called the Red Delicious. Believe it or not, the Red Delicious, when it came on the market in the late 1800s, 1880s, 1890s, it won contests far and wide as the most delicious apple. People loved the the thick skin. They loved the large globe shape. They loved the white flesh. It was unique because it was a prettier apple than previous orchards have been able to come up with. Legend says that one Iowa farmer saw a mutant apple sapling in his orchard. He chopped it down. It grew back the next year. He chopped it down again, and it grew back again. And finally, at that point, he said, if the must grow, the may, as the legend goes. If the must grow, the may. And ten years later, that tree started producing that early crop. They called it the Hawkeye apple. Eventually it became the uh, 
They called it the delicious, and then in the early 1900s, it became the red delicious. And that dominated the American market for many, many years. But tastes have changed. And you probably don't buy a lot of red delicious apples anymore. Your kids still might get them in their McDonald's Happy Meal or in their, their lunch at school. But our tastes have changed. We eat more Fuji. We eat more Gala apples and many others as well. The Red Delicious has kind of become an object of scorn. We laugh at its waxy skin. Yes, it's beautiful, but it's beautiful because it's almost fake. And, the, and, and people, we wonder, how did people for so many years, that, that apple, I think the number is like 67, 68% of the entire apple, U.S. apple industry. How did people for so long, and even now today, it's still the majority apple, buy so many of those? What did they see in it? Taste change. And as we're going to talk this week and next week about your tongue today, about your tongue today, not 50 years ago, not when the New Testament was written, today, we're going to see that things have changed. Tastes have changed. Preferences have changed. Culture has shifted when it comes to profanity. And there's a lot of Christians, if you have had your head in the sand, you may not know this, but there's a large segment among evangelical Christians that have said, it is all right to use these coarse words. And many of them have very solid reasons for doing so. At least they think they do. They say that we have, you know, we've kicked off those, those restrictions those legalistic restrictions of, of past generations. We don't have hesitance in using those off-color languages. One person said, we need to use the ugly words of life to describe the ugly situations. We shouldn't be afraid to do that. It's not just people, Christians in the workplace, although from my limited observation, I do suspect that a lot of Christians use words at work that they wouldn't use in other contexts. But now Christian bloggers are sprinkling their gospel-centered thoughts with words that you would consider rude or profane. A well-known pastor like Mark Driscoll in the Pacific Northwest actively uses salty language at times from the pulpit. These aren't fringe elements of evangelical Christianity. They're actively following and writing about and speaking of Jesus. I know there are Christians who've adopted a, a... if the must, the may attitude. Well, if you're going to crop up all around me, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, might as well ad- adopt you into my vocabulary as well. But there are other Christians who have intentionally said, this is a freedom we have. This is something we need to be doing to express ourselves properly in today's culture. They view themselves as having graduated as it were, from that stricter Christian subculture. If you haven't guessed it already, some of this crowd are also enthusiastically embracing freedom to try different craft beers or get their life story tattooed on their bodies. Friends, this isn't going away. We need to think about these issues. Specifically, we need to think about the words that we use in 2014, southeastern Michigan. I'm going to guess that some of you 
identify with these newer attitudes. It resonates with you. The reasons that you heard in the past not to engage in some strong language or not to open that nice Merlot with your dinner or not to watch that R-rated comedy, they seem like relics of a different age. They don't seem to really apply anymore. Perhaps they don't. Perhaps you heard poor arguments growing up that did more damage than good. And to be fair, I'm also going to look at those who historically, traditionally have kept themselves from those words that maybe many of you in this group, you grew up not saying those words. I had a middle-aged Christian lady once tell me that she stopped watching a Christian-produced film because they said words like heck and gosh. And those are euphemisms. And euphemisms are almost as bad as the real thing. And Christians should avoid all appearance of evil. She's dead serious. Just to warn you, I'm going to use some words that I would never use. Some words that I would rarely use from the pulpit today and next week, okay? Don't be shocked. But we need to, we need to look at this honestly. And I can't just spell them out or make air quotes and hope you know what I'm talking about. George Carlin once had an old comedy routine about the seven words you can't say on television. I haven't seen it. You may, you may at least know what he's talking about. We probably can guess most of those words. But I'm also certain, as I said, some of you grew up in an environment where it wasn't seven words, it was dozens and dozens of words you couldn't say at church. You couldn't say in your Christian circles. These were off limits. You didn't say euphemisms, you didn't say phrases. It had a whole list of regulations that you needed to keep. And I'm guessing some of you today, that resonates with you. And you're hoping that I'm going to crack down hard on those who've let their loops, lips be too loose over the last few years. The problem is, friends, the Bible doesn't give us a list of what words are and aren't acceptable in 2014 or in 1964 or even in A.D. 44. Quoting Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, is a great principle. But conservative Christians have been guilty in the past of using a broad biblical command like that and building this massive series of very specific amendments off of it. And the purpose, often, if we're being honest, was just to get people in our community in line to make them match up to our expectations of what a Christian ought to look like. I'm not saying that's wrong, but we need to understand that a lot of the structure, the framework we've built around how our mouths should sound today or how they sounded in a different day is based on expectations, cultural expectations. For those who are on the receiving end, perhaps, of all those regulations and those corrections, and you can't say that, you have to say this. It may have seemed like they were being hit on the head with a club rather than being shepherded with a staff. Getting out into college or in the workplace or in any scenario among unsaved people, they started hearing words they weren't used to hearing. They started hearing humor, perhaps, that was way beyond the bounds of what they considered appropriate. And they didn't have the tools to deal with that. Perhaps they shut themselves off from unsaved people entirely. You people are so perverted and filthy. 
I can't even listen to what you have to say. Or perhaps they just let down the barricades. No. I never heard good reasons not to say those words, not to engage in activity. Might as well. I've cast off X and Y. I might as well cast off Z. They weren't given the tools to make decisions for themselves of what was going to please the Lord in their own lives. So, what we're going to do today and next week is examine some biblical and logical principles to help us make those decisions for yourselves, for your families. They're not going to look the same, everybody in this room. I think we do have some clear guidelines from the Bible that we can apply But that is what we're doing. We're applying. The Bible never said to not say heck. It gave us principles about our speech, about the holiness of God, and about our stand in this world that we need to take very seriously. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Lord, please give me the clarity and the energy to bring these important truths And I pray that we would all take a look in our hearts, which is where our mouths come from, that we would look and we would see what is motivating our words. Why do we say or not say certain things? And that we would ultimately bring you the glory as we reflect your character. In Christ's name, amen. How does Christ-likeness look today? Well, important thing that I want you to consider right off the bat is that language changes. Language changes as our culture changes. It's pretty useless to dig your flag-bearing standard in the sand and say, here I stand. The rest of the world can go to hell. I will stand here. Because that sand is shifting and changing constantly. It's like claiming an area of the beach as your own and then that sand gets pulled into the ocean and whipped back up in a totally different location. Things change and shift. Words like Negro, retard, they're off limits today, aren't they? They weren't 50 years ago. The culture thinks they are something that needs to be roped off as offensive today. You may or may not agree, but the fact is, if you say those words in in anyone's company almost, be prepared to be corrected. Because those are not considered. They have developed and changed into offensive words. What can start off as mere political correctness morphs into polite decorum. Or take the word ass. Told you I was going to say some words. In a different generation, it meant a donkey. You read about it in your King James Bible. It was a donkey. Then it became then it came to mean, as I understand. Don't make an ass out of yourself. Don't be a fool. Don't be a, don't be a, a, a goof off. It wasn't really crude. It maybe was slightly rude or slightly, you know, demeaning. Then it came to mean a part of the body. And then it not only was a part of the body, but it became an epithet that you would throw at someone that you disagreed with. You'd add a couple choice suffixes to that. And, or, or make a phrase out of it, and it became extremely vulgar. Culture even recognizes today that that's a vulgarity. So words change. They shift. 
And you have to keep your ear to the ground because the Bible didn't say words then that were off limits. If Paul and the other New Testament writers had given us a list of words, they would have been laughably out of date within a decade or by the time that letter went from a Greek community to a Roman community. The words weren't the same. And so we need to dig down and do the research and be willing to work through what culture looks like, what it sounds like today, and how that applies to our search for holiness as we become like the image of Jesus. We need to wrestle with how the culture speaks and why. Because, friends, language is a social contract. Do you realize that? We have covenanted together, not as a Christian community, but as an English-speaking community in 2014 southeastern Michigan to agree that certain words mean certain things. It happens automatically. It's one of the cool things about anthropology. People adopt words, and the community decides collectively that that word means something. It may mean what the dictionary says it means, or it may mean that plus a double entendre. So I don't, when, when you say, my elbow really hurts, I don't say, does that person mean me? They said elbow, but I think maybe they meant their knee hurts. Maybe, maybe it was their left earlobe. No, we understand. We've contracted together. Language means one thing, or maybe a couple of things, but we understand it usually in context, what it means. And that varies from community to community. You can't just say, oh, American English in the 21st century. It's, it it's, has a solidarity. Well, it has a solidarity in some things. But if you went down south and said, you need to go down that street and then make a Michigan left. What? Honey, I don't understand what you're saying. And you'd say, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> a Michigan left, we know what that means. We, in our community, or if you said, I'm going up to the UP. We don't think you mean an unknown person. Why are you going up to see an unknown person? You're going to the, to the Upper Peninsula. But I would say those are fairly specific to Michigan, maybe a, a slightly larger area of the Midwest. So words have the power in a lot of cases that we assign to them as a culture, specifically as a subculture. The writers of the Bible weren't going to give us a list of words to avoid. It was wisdom that the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of God's word to give us everything that we needed for life and godliness. But a lot of times, it's the general principle that we need to filter through our culture, or perhaps more accurately, filter our culture through the general principles of God's word. And that is how you develop your standards. That is where you draw the line today. It's not based on what your grandparents or parents did or didn't do. It's based on how the culture is right now. We can't ignore the fact that as we do that due diligence, that we're going to discover that the culture still has cordoned off some words as inappropriate, as adult. Even in our fallen culture, that seems to get worse and worse with each generation. 21st century America still recognizes that there are some words that are off limits in some scenarios. You're not going to hear President Obama use the F word in one of his speeches. Probably won't hear him use any profanity. It's considered off limits for that scenario. 
If you went into a kindergarten class and started cussing like a sailor, the administration of that school is going to consider that inappropriate. If you went in the teacher's lounge, you might hear the most awful language in the world. But they understand there are some boundaries. So it's not that our culture is so fallen, and I just hear so much swear words, Zach. You know, I'm not even using the worst words. You know, I'm just using some. When I get angry, when I get frustrated, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it is a big of a deal because the culture understands there are some things. Maybe it's a new word like retard that has recently been minted into that off-limits category. Maybe some words like Jesus and God or holy language is starting to fade out of that cordoned-off area. But if the culture has these categories of adult language, of coarse language, why are some Christians so eager to tear those boundaries down? That's a question I have. Words may bend and be reshaped, but they still have great power. There's no way to escape the fact that what we say matters to God. I'm going to read you some of the things that Jesus said about the mouth. Very explicit points that need to be taken into consideration. Matthew 12, 34 and 37, through 37, Jesus taught, The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That may be the first, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. That may be one of the first verses you hear, you think of, when it comes to strong language or any language at all. But in context, Jesus is saying, and he goes on, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That may be another biblical principle that you think of. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You may have grown up hearing, wow, anything I say comes from the heart. And every idle word I speak, I'm going to give an account thereof on the day of judgment. And that scared you, or that motivated you to keep your language crystal clear. The problem is, Jesus is talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to the Pharisees. They revealed again and again their adversarial attitude towards Jesus by the strong language they used against him. They called him names. They challenged his authority. They showed their unbelieving hearts in their words. Jesus is saying a righteous man will bring up righteous words because his heart has been changed. An unbeliever, we got to expect that. They're going to show what's really in their hearts over time. The unregenerate heart bubbles out of the unregenerate mouth. It's not talking about Christians per se. It does show the link between hearts and mouths, which is an important one. Then in Matthew 12, 10 through 11 and 18 through 20, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Do you remember the context again? He's talking to the Pharisees once again. You think that something as, as mundane as eating with unwashed hands ceremonially defiles you. You've built an entire code around the law that God gave 
And you have all these expectations for people. But your mouths are betraying you, Jesus said to unbelievers. Now, they may look nice. They may say a lot of the right things. But when push comes to shove, their unbelief comes out of their mouth. Those depraved values, murder, sexual immorality, lying, that comes out of an unregenerate mouth. Jesus saw that those Pharisees and others had their hearts bound by sin and their, their words were revealing their hypocrisy. It's ridiculous to say that our language is unimportant. Friends, the entirety of our communication, words, our gestures, our expression, the tone of our voice, it all contributes to human communication. And that's very important to God. The whole thing. One commentator wrote, Only a renewed heart can produce pure speech. And consistently, though not perfectly pure speech, is to be the product of a renewed heart. If every area of our lives is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you don't get to say, Well, I know I use some bad language when I'm around the guys at work. Uh, You know, when I'm with that one family member, I just kind of let loose too. But it's not a big deal, right? That area, I don't have to repent of that, do I? I don't have to surrender to Jesus on that. It's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. And we'll see that. Turn to James. This letter in your New Testament is extremely practical. It gives a lot of the nuts and bolts for how to live that new life in Christ. And James begins in in the first couple verses that we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. And he's using satire, irony. Of course nobody is perfect. If you were perfect, then you'd be able to control your tongue perfectly. Are you controlling your tongue perfectly? Then you're not perfect. Humans can subdue things as we continue that passage. Bits in the mouths of horses. Take ships as an example. They're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Humans have the ingenuity to control things huge, powerful, a horse, a ship. But the tongue, it eludes us. We're not able in our own strength to subdue and control the tongue. You cannot tame it in your own power. It's only through the power of the gospel. And look at verse 6, or verse 5. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. It's like playing with a blowtorch, giving a blowtorch to a kindergartner. Eh, you'll figure it out, right? You're not going to do any, any permanent damage. When we don't make any effort to control our tongues, when we set that aside as something that, well, it's just who I am. I've always just let fly with whatever was on my mouth. Uh, You don't understand the way I grew up. We're playing with fire, quite literally. And I have to ask, if the evil power of the tongue, when it has great power to do good as well, but if the evil power of the tongue is itself set on fire by hell, and that's hell fire, 
then why, we have to ask ourselves, what is really motivating these words that are coming out of my mouth? Is it the Holy Spirit that's trying to bring me to Christ-likeness? Or is it something more sinister that's making these words flow out? Look at verses 9 through 12. Verse 8 says, It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. There's one of the greatest things we can do with our mouths, if not the greatest thing. And with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Such a stark contrast. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It would be infuriating and puzzling if you had a spring of water that sometimes produced a wonderful, drinkable, pure water, and sometimes produced a nasty, rust-colored, disgusting-tasting water. It would annoy you to no end. It would almost drive you crazy because you couldn't figure out how that was happening. Sometimes, other times, I just, I don't get it. It is incompatible with our new walk in Christ for us to be spewing curses towards other people. So I'm going to make one of those guidelines here for you. Even if some words that the culture in the past considered coarse, perhaps they've passed out of that inner circle of the worst words, and you think you have the freedom to use some of those ugly words to describe the ugly situations of life, I'm going to point you to this verse here and say that neither you nor I nor anyone has the right to curse other people who are made in God's image. That hateful mouth is as unbecoming on a Christian as that salt water that comes out when you're expecting a fresh drink. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Cursing insults the maker of the person being cursed. It's radically inconsistent for the Christian to do that to anyone Since people are made in God's image, when you direct a profanity, and it really doesn't matter which one, at another person, whether it's a bad driver on the road, or your jerk of a boss, or your toddler that's destroying things, you're showing contempt for something that's unique in all of creation. A person that is made in God's image, even if that image is flawed and fallen, and that person is driving you crazy, We don't have the right to curse them because it shows contempt for something that God made in his own image, unique. Furthermore, turn to chapter 1. And 3.6 said that the tongue corrupts us. Now James had previously said in verse 27 of chapter 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's another one of those very broad principles that has been used to cover everything. But specifically here, that is the same word, polluted, that he uses in 3.6. The tongue corrupts us. 
So what he's doing is in 127, he's saying, look, keep yourselves from being corrupted by the world. In chapter 3, hey, here's one of the things that corrupts you, your own tongue. It's like a little traitor that's working against you, against your efforts and the Spirit's efforts to grow in grace. It's corrupting you from the inside out, trying to undo the work that God is doing in your heart to subvert that growth in grace. It's the same word in Greek, polluted, corrupted. That's going to keep us from that pure and true religion that God values. And it makes the previous verse all the more potent. Look at verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Friends, a true religion, a renewed heart in Christ is going to be seeking to avoid polluting influences that may look different in time, in generation by generation, community by community, but your efforts need to be made to not let your tongue pollute your walk with God because it's easy to happen. I know that these scripture passages and others don't directly tell you to not use that vulgar language when joking with your friends. And even though it would be helpful, they certainly don't give you a spectrum of acceptable to unacceptable words. You know, green, yellow, orange, red, don't use. That would be nice. But friends, what I'm asking you to do is not give up trying to figure this out in your heart and in your life. Think through where your words come from. Fight to tame that tongue. One blogger recounted how she felt frustrated for years in her conservative Christian community about not being able to use profanity. She felt restricted. She's finally found peace now in, as I said earlier, allowing the ugly words to describe the ugly things in life. I think it's interesting that she also talks about how she needs to vent. Really, is that a need? To vent our emotions through our mouths? That's what she says. Phrases like, and I'm quoting her, just trust in the Lord and everything will work out for his glory, unquote, aren't enough for her. She needs to describe these tough situations, again, quote, with the most colorful language I can muster to paint the clearest picture I can, unquote. And I question whether letting your mouth go unfettered is really authentic. <laughs> is, that, is that really a virtue to just let raw emotion pour out of your mouth? James did say that also that man's wrath doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. But this woman has, and many, many others, have convinced themselves that somehow the language of the street is more real than the language of the pew. Think about that. She looks at how her unsaved friends speak. Coarse words, right off the tip of their tongue. They're creative, even, (laughs) in their use of profanity to describe what is bothering them, who is bothering them. Maybe she looks at her, at her Christian friends and thinks, well, at least my unsaved friends are being genuine, right? They're speaking what's in their heart. My Christian friends, they hem, they haw, they use dumb little words like fiddlesticks or rats. Or they just repeat a well-worn old saying like, God will take care of it. Maybe this blogger and others think that it's less 
natural, more forced to struggle with the profanity of our culture, to fight that, to set off some words as, no, I can't say that. No, that's not acceptable for me. Of course, Christians are people with two natures. Isn't it obvious? We're going to be fighting that fight. Sometimes we're going to fall. Sometimes we're going to say some words we shouldn't. Sometimes we're going to be pricked with guilt about things that floated through our minds. We're going to hem and haw. I'm so frustrated, but I'm not going to say that word. Or I did, and Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have used that language. And they seem inconsistent. They seem like they're going back and forth because we have two natures. The unbeliever only has one nature. The only thing holding them back from spouting off with whatever adult language they want is who is in front of them. Or they think, how is it going to look, how is it going to reflect on me? The Christian is going to struggle. They should struggle. And so today, my encouragement to you, embrace the struggle. Don't give up fighting. For those of you, maybe you haven't been Christians as long. Maybe you have many years of using adult language. And you find it hard to rid yourself of that habit, even now. And maybe there's some words that you've been able to shake off, but there's others you have a hard time justifying why it's wrong, but it also feels wrong. And your conscience bothers you. Don't give up the fight. Don't just adopt what the culture says is an appropriate word in that moment when you hit your finger with the hammer. Don't just adopt what the culture says is an appropriate way to describe your spouse when you get to work because of how they're frustrating you. Put the barricades back up. Think about what is going on in the world around you. Think about what those words mean. Consider how curbing your language, perhaps even at work, can reflect God's glory because you're showing as Pastor mentioned a couple weeks ago, salt and light are substantially different than the norm. That's what makes them stand out. But Christians, if you were raised in a context where swearing was off limits, your mom and dad hardly or never perhaps swore. Your Christian school didn't let you swear. And you've got it pretty, pretty tapped down. You don't struggle with swearing. You look at a Christian who does and say, whoa, that word come out of their mouth? Well, they must not be there very far along in their walk with Christ. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you know, I don't need to speak that way. My vocabulary is better than that. Do we realize how elitist that sounds? I grew up better. My parents taught me better. I was better in school. So you using swear words and me not makes me better than you what we're saying. It doesn't matter, friends, how we were raised or not raised. It matters what you are pursuing right now in your walk with Jesus. And I warrant all of you, myself included, the fact that that word doesn't pass out audibly for others to hear doesn't mean it's not flowing through our minds. Or to go deeper, it doesn't mean that attitude, that emotion of anger or frustration, or questioning God, or hate, isn't running rampant 
like an overflowing river through our hearts. Don't stop fighting to root out those traitorous heart failures that express themselves sometimes through your mouth. None of us can reform our mouths simply through our own willpower. We have to be equipped with those gospel weapons of a renewed heart and a spirit that tweaks us and points us and guides us. We're going to be fighting this battle the rest of our lives. And it doesn't matter if you have a potty mouth or a pastor's mouth. You can't relax. The world wants to dictate its values to you. But we have to struggle to speak in a way that reflects God's glory. We won't always be perfect. And we should show grace to others, wherever they are, whatever their particular standards are. But we need God's help in this. We need to embrace the struggle. Let's pray. Lord and Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your grace because we certainly could not tame our tongues in our own strength. It's too powerful, too dangerous. And Lord, we trust that our mouths will be showing the work that you're doing, the reconstruction of our hearts and that we will show values that Jesus showed and that we would be kind and patient with others. Help us in this pursuit this week. In Christ's name. Amen.